Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Welcome, listeners. This is a holy week for many religions, including my own, and I kind of wish I had done a better job of planning in advance for these events, but there's always next year. I am so excited that we are sneaking in this Passover episode almost towards the end of Passover week. And today we are welcoming Marissa, who burst onto the Jewish baking scene at the beginning of COVID by starting a blog where she creates a new challah bread recipe every week. Um, a few of these recipes incorporate expected flavors like the milk, honey, and turmeric version, but there are many wildly adventurous flavors that Marissa has created. So I'm just thrilled to have Marissa here with us. And even though she's made her claim to fame, challah bread, of course, you can't eat challah bread during Passover. This is the one week you can't eat it. So in this episode, we're talking about the significances of the Seder meal. We'll talk about Marissa's grandmother, a Holocaust survivor. We talk about a sojourner who was tricked by his brothers into disembarking in the wrong country, a country where his family still lives four generations later. And we talk a lot about the funny common experiences that Marissa shares with so many American Jews. Finally, we even tackle the question, what does it mean to be Jewish? And spoiler alert, Marissa definitely does not answer this question definitively. Her answer is, of course, it depends. So welcome, welcome to Marissa and to all of you. I'm so glad you're here and can't wait to share this episode. I really do want to thank you for coming on so last minute, Marissa. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. <laughs> Let's talk about Passover and tell me what it means to the Jewish people and in general, and what it means to you personally. So Passover, you know, just in general is celebrating the freeing of the Jewish people um, from being slaves in Egypt and kind of the Exodus. Mm. And we tell the Exodus story every year mm. at our seders, which are celebratory meal, but also kind of the religious part. And Passover is actually one of my favorite holidays, even though it means that I eat nothing but fruit and nuts pretty much for mm. a week. <laughs> I grew up reform. Um, so I don't know how familiar you are with kind of the denominations of Judaism, but reform is at one point, I don't know if people still call it this, but was kind of called the pick and choose um, <laughs> denomination of Judaism. So really kind of picking and choosing how you mm. want to participate and how you want to be Jewish. And so that meant typically if you're more religious, you'll do a first night Seder and a second night Seder. Mm-hmm. Um, my family always only did first night and our Seder's typically lasted about 20 minutes because my family just wanted to get to the meal. (laughs) (laughs) You were choosing to eat. (laughs) You know, as I got older, I kind of started to get a little bit more religious. And so I started pushing kind of, okay, if we're only having one Seder, let's make it a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Passover in our family is really a time to kind of talk about, you know, around that theme of slavery and what it meant for Jews to be enslaved in Egypt, but also Mm -hmm you know, there's still so many forms of modern day slavery and people who are oppressed. And mm. um, so we take a lot of time at our family seders to kind of reflect on, you know, the past year and what we've done to kind of help improve the world. There's a phrase in Judaism called tikkun olam, which means to basically heal the world. And so our seders are typically very focused around that. Um, and my mom and I 
I think the last two or three years before COVID, we had actually started printing out different, you can find different kind of add-ons. So the book you read during Seder is called the Haggadah. Mm. Um, and there are, I mean, thousands of different Haggadot and different add-ons to it. And so we would always try to find a new one kind of talking about that social justice element and hope that it won't pass that 20 minute mark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, that is very interesting that you say that because actually I took out a question about the denominations of Jews. So it's interesting that that came up so quickly. So I went to school with a lot of reformed Jews, Mm -hmm. um, but I lived in a neighborhood that was very close to a neighborhood that was full of Orthodox Jews. So I had a lot of friends who were with reformed Jews and I saw Orthodox Jews walking to synagogue on Saturday, you know, but I didn't actually know any of them at all. And one thing that really was a thread that tied together all of my Jewish friends is that they were very committed, even if they were not religious at all. And I think I remember explaining to one of my Jewish friends the difference between Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. (laughs) So, So some of them were not at all religious, but one thing that tied them together was a strong commitment to, um, how should I say this? I guess taking their Jewish history and the Mm -hmm. hardship and the oppression that their family had suffered Mm -hmm. and yes, applying those lessons and empathy and support for other people groups. So that's amazing that that's an important part of your Seder. The meal itself isn't necessarily super symbolic, but it's what you put on the Seder plate that's really symbolic. And it's kind of what you talk about in the ceremony of the whole Seder. Um, but there are uh, six things that you're supposed to put on the Seder plate that are really traditional. And then there are kind of debates on where this started, but probably five or six years ago now, my family started putting an orange on the Seder plate. And the story that we tell in our family is at some point, someone said, well, you know, a woman belongs leading a a Jewish religious service, just like an orange belongs on a Seder plate, meaning it didn't belong. And so it's, it symbolizes all of the Jews who, who aren't necessarily looked at as being, you know, quote unquote Jewish or, you know, women, Jews of color, LGBTQ Jews, anything like that. And so it's really kind of this nice inclusion And, you know, it really does stick out like a sore thumb because everything else on the Seder plate is pretty brown. That's so interesting. Yeah, I've never heard that before. Let's jump into the Seder meal because it really sounds like Seder and Passover are, I don't want to say synonymous, but you almost cannot celebrate Passover without having Seder. Would you you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Seder is a part of Passover. It's, you know, Seder in Hebrew actually means order. Um, So it's all about kind of the order that you do things. And it's like a liturgy, liturgy in the Christian tradition. And so, you know, every year you go through the same steps. And I think that's part of the reason I like Passover so much Mm. is because it's kind of that repetitive nature. You know, you go through all the symbolism of what's on the Seder plates. You know, for example, there's parsley is always something that's on the Seder plate and you dip it in salt water and then eat it to kind of symbolize the tears that were shed while the Jewish people were enslaved. Or as my family says, the tears anyone sheds while they're enslaved because slavery mm. is not over in any right, right. form. Yeah. Um, there's also a mixture. It's called perosit. Per- it's, it's a mixture of nuts, apples, wine, and honey. And so you just, you pulse it all in a food processor basically. And it 
symbolizes the mortar that was used to build the buildings that Jews built while they were enslaved. Uh, um, mm-hmm. And then you eat part of a big part of the Seder is eating the harosa in a sandwich with <laughs> matzah, obviously, because we can't have bread. Mm. So it's matzah, harosa, and then a bitter herb, which is usually horseradish, mm. um, which is my least favorite part of Seder. Mm. I <laughs> spicy foods. <laughs> um, but it's Put always it some wasabi mustard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's always, you know, my grandma always gets like a fresh, fresh horseradish root and like mm-hmm. grates it or slices it. Mm-hmm. And you put it all together and you eat a sandwich that kind of symbolizes the bitterness and just the whole experience. And as a kid, that was kind of one of my favorite parts because it meant we were going to get to eat the real meal soon. (laughs) (laughs) It Uh, cleansed your palate. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I will admit I usually leave the horseradish out. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think it is so powerful, this sensory experience. And so I guess... Another question I have is this, so if you go to the Torah, do you mm-hmm. find this meal kind of like prescribed by God? Is it implemented? Did it come about in tradition later? That's actually a really interesting question. Mm. <laughs> I don't think it's you know mentioned anywhere in the Torah just because it does tell a story. Mm. So we always retell the story, the story of Exodus during Seder. I really don't know like when Seder started. That's really an interesting question. Well, and let me ask this also the term Passover, is there mm-hmm. a meaning to that? Yeah. Um, so in the retelling of the story of Exodus, God tells Moses, he's going to cast 10 plagues on the Egyptians. Mm-hmm. And the last of these 10 plagues is the killing of the firstborn son. This is where, <laughs> you know, it gets not as cheery. Nope. Yep. Um, and so all of the Jews were told to actually mark lamb's blood over their door. Mm-hmm. So that the angel of death would know to pass over those houses. Mm. It's such a dramatic story. And to remember it in such a dramatic way mm-hmm. is, I guess, to me as a person of faith, it is significant because I do actually believe that God like wants to communicate with us and he mm-hmm. wants us to communicate with him. That's why I guess I asked the question about where it came from traditionally, because I personally don't find it surprising that God would implement this method that would, you know, just bring us closer, bring us into some kind of communication with him. Does that make sense? You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And I also, as you know, someone who's gotten more religious over the years, it's almost a comfort like to, mm. <laughs> to think about. <laughs> Right. Uh, to think that this is, there's someone who wants to communicate with me, like not yeah. just anyone, but the God who masterminded and and executed and told this story also yeah. still wants to communicate with me personally. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I agree. Mm. Mm. No, that's really powerful. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah, of so you said Passover means you can only eat fruit and nuts for a little <laughs> while. So We've learned why you eat the foods you do eat at a Seder meal, what they symbolize. What are the restrictions in place for? What are they meant to do for your faith? So the story kind of, the you know, every small little Jewish child is told is that as, you know, as the Jews were fleeing Egypt, they didn't have a lot of time to kind of gather their belongings or to make sure they had food with them. Um to, you know, sustain them in the Egyptian desert as they fled. Mm. And so they actually baked unleavened bread as they were fleeing because it was so hot. Yeah. And so we eat matzo, which is 
just like a cracker. It's unleavened bread. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think it's pretty akin to what a communion wafer tastes like. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, we eat unleavened bread and depending on how religious you are, there are other kind of restrictions. And it also depends on whether you're Ashkenazi or Sephardic or Mizrahi Mm -hmm. or any other geographical difference. Mm -hmm. So I'm Ashkenazi. I'm almost purely Eastern European descent. Okay. Um, So, you know, we don't eat leavened bread. We don't eat legumes, which is really difficult. So like no peanut butter, no green beans, Wow, uh, which is one of the really big differences between how, what the limits are. They can eat beans and rice and kind of all of that during Passover, which I don't quite find fair, but you know. (laughs) (laughs) So, so just to to summarize the answer to the question, and then I want to like move on to this new point that you made. So you restrict what you eat in memory of the haste in which the Israelites packed up and left. Yeah. So it is actually interesting what you bring up Ashkenazi and Sephardic Jews. And so before we were talking about reformed and Orthodox, and I think there's also Hasidic. Is that correct? And those are kind of tiers of how religious you are, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But now you're talking about a different way of distinguishing Jews. So explain that a little bit. Yeah. So it all has to do with kind of the geographics of where your family comes from. So growing up in the Chicago suburbs, the vast majority, except for like one or two of my friends were of Ashkenazi descent, meaning, you know, Eastern European I mean, really any European except for the Iberian Peninsula. And Sephardic Jews come um, the Iberian Peninsula, the Middle East. So Persian Jews are a really big part of Sephardic Jewry. Ah. Um, And it's really interesting to see the difference in traditions. That is so interesting. Well, one, just personally, I, I, so, so the churches that I grew up in were kind of very much came out of the Puritan, which was, mm-hmm. you know, a certain type of people group. Quite frankly, I think they were all depressed all the time. <laughs> and that very much, um, affected their theology and the things that they wrote. And as I expand, to read Christian writings from different cultures and stuff, it's so interesting to see how some things were Mm -hmm. a little bit more informed by culture. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And I imagine that's true in the Jewish tradition. But then on top of that, I feel like Jewish is this like really interesting word. And, Mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm going to refer back to a story that you wrote me about. Um, So you make a lot of different, tell me how to say it. Hala breads. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, first, let's do this for a second. Real quick. Tell us what a challah bread is and what uh, you do on your blog with them. And then we're going to return to this question of Jewish, you know, kind of as a classification. But I think it's going to make more sense if we talk about the challah bread first. And if I can share the story um, you gave me as context for this discussion. Yeah. So challah is kind of the traditional bread that we eat on Shabbat, which is, mm. you know, the Jewish Sabbath. I've heard it described kind of as an egg bread. Mm. Um, like a brioche. Kind of. Yeah. It's a little bit easier to make. Well, a lot easier to make oh, than brioche okay. having done both of them. You know, it's just kind of this really squishy bread that we eat on Friday nights. Mm. And again, centered around that kind of notion. People sit down on Friday nights and have a Shabbat meal with their family. And I, there's kind of this through line of all of my baking and cooking that really connects family. Um, Mm. 
it started in quarantine for me of like, okay, well, how can I keep these traditions that we had before quarantine of, you know, going to Friday night Shabbat services or just celebrating in ways we would if we were together. But it just was something to me that became therapeutic to do Mm -hmm. every week, especially in the really early days of the pandemic when Mm -hmm. it was all, you know, I'm 2000 miles away from pretty much my whole family. Mm, Um, That's hard, Marissa. You know, and it started really early on in the Jewish baking community Mm. that people would bake challah. And there's um, a tradition that when you bake challah as you're kneading the dough, you kind of think of people who need healing. Oh, Um, wow. That's so powerful, Marissa. Yeah. And so it became this thing, you know, people would post on their Instagrams, you know, please send me names of anyone, you know, who's sick and I'll, you know, pray for them while I'm needing the holla. Oh, I love that. And it just, it was so mentally healing in like Mm. those really tough early days. You know, holla is not hard to make. It's a really easy recipe. Even if you've never made bread before, it's really hard to screw up. (laughs) So, (laughs) So it's just, it's something that became so therapeutic and like almost religious in and of itself. Mm. And am I correct that you make a different flavor of challah bread every week? Yeah, I try to. This is amazing to me. <laughs> this is just amazing to me. How though, I need to know, do you find these flavors? Do you just dream them up every week? A lot of the time it really has to do with people or experiences that I'm missing. And mm. so for example, like during I try to do them in series just because it's easier for me to plan. Uh, (laughs) Yes, that's smart. So my two series ago, I did an Around the World series of Hollow, which was so fun. And I've always been one to kind of experiment with flavors when I'm cooking or when I'm baking. And it doesn't always turn out for the best. (laughs) (laughs) That is okay. It is better to fail trying than to just stick with the same thing all the time. I personally think. (laughs) Exactly. That ended up being the longest series I've ever done. And I'm actually planning for a part two of it after. Oh, wow. But it became this way of not only connecting with people who I really missed, but also connecting with the places that I really missed. For example, I made... (laughs) My, I have cousins who live in England and every time their, their favorite drink or one of their favorite drinks is called a porn star martini. The first time they had me go, they're like, just go order one at the bar. I'm like, you're totally just yanking my chain. Like, yeah. Not a real drink. <laughs> and so I, I went, I ordered one and it's this passion fruit, basically. Mar- oh yeah. I'm looking uh, at it. Oh, I can't yeah. think of the right word. Uh, it's vanilla absolute vodka. Yeah. Passion fruit pulp, vanilla syrup, and passion fruit puree. Yeah. So it's this like secondly wow. sweet drink. Wow. <laughs> My husband would love that. When we go out, the waiter's like, okay, just tell us you want a girly drink. <laughs> Well, and it's, you know, before COVID, I, my cousins are very close in age. And so, you know, this has been really difficult to be, this is the longest I haven't seen them, I Mm. think at least five years. (laughs) So by creating this flavor of hollow, I'm connecting with this place and these people who mean so much to me. (laughs) Um, Oh, I'm just imagining posting about this and saying, Marissa has made a porn star (laughs) martini challah bread. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you one more. So I actually, I just listened to the episode that you did on, um, I can't remember her name, but on the pierogies and going back. Oh to the- yeah. Lydia. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Yes. Uh, to me, that resonated so much because my my dad's parents, one is actually a Holocaust survivor and that's wow. my grandma. And then she married a Polish Catholic guy whose family has been in Chicago for generations. So, you know, for Christmas, he makes this really kind of almost soda bread mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. That has raisins, and then it's actually topped with this cottage cheese and egg mixture. Oh, it uh, sounds vile, but I'm going to believe it's delicious. <laughs> my dad cannot stand it, but it is like one of my favorite things. It's one of those things you know you only get once a year. I'm going <laughs> like, back to Google for this. <laughs> I have no idea what it's called because I've only ever seen him make it. But we also make, my grandma make probably close to 200 pierogies and we're a family of what, eight or nine people? Like, we oh, yes, but they're so addictive. <laughs> and well, she's, you know, she sends them home with everyone and you, you're good for the year. <laughs> I figured I was like, okay, I have the recipe to make the pierogi dough. I think I can fill it and braid it and actually make it into a hollow shape. And so I, I was like, okay, this is absolutely nuts, but I'm going to try it because what else do I have to do in quarantine? You know, that was another way of connecting with my family and, you know, again, those people and places. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. So PS, the bet, I've read this before. It's called, I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's stolen Stalin, S-T-O-L-L-E-N. I've read Mm -hmm. about this type of bread. It's a cottage cheese bread. Yeah. And it has raisins in it. I'm sure that's what your, what's your dad, it's your grandfather made it. Your yeah, my, yeah. My grandpa, your grandpa. Yes. I've read about this bread and never known what it was. So that's amazing. And your pierogi hala sounds amazing too. So getting back to this question, I'm so glad you shared that because it'll give the context, the proper context for this question. But when we went off to talk about the hala bread and why you started making the different types and everything, we had been talking about how you have these variations of Jews in terms of how Mm -hmm. religiously strict they are. And then you also have these distinctions among Jews in terms of ancestry, right? Like, so Eastern Mm -hmm. European, or like you said, um, on the Iberian Peninsula is what you said, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Iberian Peninsula, Middle East. So the question that I'm getting to is really, what does it mean to be Jewish, right? Mm -hmm. And what you told me that really prompted this question is you talked about how you made a challah bread that pulled in Chinese flavors mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you heard from a Chinese Jewish couple and mm-hmm. you you kind of identified them this way. They were a Chinese Jewish couple. So as in one spouse was Chinese and the other spouse was Jewish. Mm-hmm. And that was just really interesting to me because Chinese is of course like a national identity. Mm-hmm. And I think of Jewish primarily, but maybe incorrectly as a religious identity, right? So Mm -hmm. it's almost like putting apples and oranges together when you identify them this way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in fact, I do feel like we use the term Jewish to actually mean a bunch of different things. So I'm curious in your mind, is Jewish a religion? Is it a culture? Is it a shared history? Um, Is it a political movement? Is it a set of foods and flavors? You know, what does Jewish mean to you? And I'm going to preface this by saying, of course, to everyone listening, I know you're only answering for yourself. You're not speaking for every Jew out there. It's really interesting. When I saw this question, I was like, Ooh, that's a doozy of a question. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, really just one episode, Becky, huh? (laughs) I actually went to grad school at a Jewish school for nonprofit management and Judaic studies. 
it was a two and a half year program. And I literally in the two and a half years that we were all in this program, my cohort was not able to answer this question. Wow. (laughs) Okay. Okay. I'll lower my expectations then. (laughs) Well, the reason we weren't able to answer it is because everyone had a different answer of what Judaism was to them. And to me, like that's what Judaism is. That's what makes it so special is that it can be whatever you want it to be. It can be a set of foods. For example, like my brother grew up going to this Jewish camp was founded by, you know, a youth organization. So like to Mm. him, that's what his Judaism is. I mean, really most religions you can do that in as well. You know, even within all my friends, there's a really wide range. And that's to me, what just makes it so exciting and Yeah. So maybe then for you, the best way to answer the question for yourself is maybe to share some stories with us. So if we may, let's go back. And I kind of want to ask, I'd like to know the story of your family. You mentioned your grandmother was a Holocaust survivor. So clearly being Jewish was very significant to her. And then also you mentioned earlier in this call that you personally have grown more religious through your Mm -hmm. life. So Mm -hmm. let's start with your family, what it meant to be Jewish for them. And then I'd love for you to tell me why you chose to make Judaism more about religion for yourself personally. Yeah. You know, it's growing up, you don't really kind of think about this stuff. And then when I, you know, it wasn't really until I think undergrad that I started to realize like, oh, my family has a pretty interesting story. Mm. Uh, And, you know, my mom's side her mom's family came over from Russia, kind of in the pogrom era. So I think it's the late 1800s mm-hmm. when the pogroms in Russia started. And, you know, I distinctly remember my grandparents when I was younger and when I was still living in Chicago, every year for my birthday would take me to the theater and we went to see Fiddler on the Roof. I was year. just going to say, we're talking about Fiddler on the Roof right now. <laughs> yes, which is one of my favorite musicals. Um, oh, but- it's amazing. Even my little two kids, yeah. like seven and 10, love it. But I remember walking into the theater and her saying, our family is from the town that this is based off of, from the shadow. Wow. And I remember thinking like, how cool I'm connected to this by my ancestry. What a cool thing. Wow. And then I got into college and, and start, you know, really kind of talking about Jewish history. And it kind of becomes this joke of everyone's grandparents have told them, if they have Russian heritage or you, oh, you know, our family is from the town. (laughs) (laughs) So here I am like as a little kid thinking, what a cool thing. Yes. Like something that's so common, you know, as a Jewish kid growing up in a predominantly non-Jewish country, you kind Mm -hmm. of look for those areas to connect. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Although, I mean, it was a universal text. It was a yeah. universal town in the sense that that experience was repeated right across right. hundreds or thousands of towns. Right. So, well, and, and that's kind of one of the points, yeah, the, film the joke and the movie and, yeah. and all of that. But it was just one of those moments that was so funny to me, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, oh, we all have this shared experience, <laughs> yeah. So, on that side. I think both of my grandparents' families have been here since the 1800s. Um, okay. My grandma's family did come in through Ellis Island, which is kind of cool. My synagogue took all of the high school seniors um, to New York to do kind of a Jewish New York weekend. Wow. And I remember going to Ellis Island and actually being able to sit at the computer and find the ship record that Incredible. we think is the mm. one my 
grandma's family came over on, they changed, you know, obviously changed their name. So it was a little bit difficult, but... And I think there's something innate in a lot of Jewish people of wanting to trace their families because it's yeah. so difficult in so many ways. And even my cousins in England are on my grandma's side of the family. And I remember asking her even, well, how how the heck did they end up in England? And she told the story of her grandfather was one of four brothers and they got on a ship from Russia and, you know, at some point it docked in the UK, mm-hmm. in London, and they tricked the youngest brother into getting off the ship, thinking, no. like, saying it was America, thinking he'd realize, oh, this isn't America yet. You know, there's no big green lady welcoming me. That's a pretty yeah. big job. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't and got left in England. <laughs> well, do you think that's true? So I totally was like, this is just family lore. There's no way. You know, he chose to stay in England. And the first time I went to England, we went to my cousin's grandparents for Shabbat. And without any kind of leading question, I asked their grandfather, I said, how did you, how did your family end up in England? And he told like verbatim the exact same story. And And he would have been the son of the brother who was left behind? The grandson. The grandson. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, there has to be some semblance of truth in this. <laughs> like, wow. you know, if they're both telling the same story pretty verbatim. <laughs> oh my word. Well, of course it makes me think of, you know, as we go through our kind of shared literature <laughs> of <laughs> Joseph and his older brothers. Yeah. You know, I, I, I have never thought about that before. It's definitely a very Joseph. <laughs> That's incredible. That's very funny. That's yeah. incredible. So that side is very rooted in kind of Midwestern values and, you know, not necessarily like, quote unquote, old world Judaism and just really Midwestern, Mm -hmm, (laughs) for mm -hmm. lack of a better term. And then on my dad's side, my grandpa's family has been here for ages. And my grandma had, you know, she was born into the Holocaust. And, And this is in Poland? This is in Germany, actually. In Germany. Oh. Um, So my paternal grandmother, her family was one of those families who had lived in Berlin for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, And then came Kristallnacht and the Holocaust. And her, my great grandmother had the good head on her shoulders to think, okay, we got to (laughs) go. Like we're, we're not sticking around. And so they fled to France, to the South of France. And that's actually where my grandma was born. So found a little farm in France and that was kind of their well-being for the time they were there. And then as things started to get worse and, you know, the Nazis started pushing, pushing West, they started to try to figure out, okay, how the heck do we get out of here? And they ended up actually boarding a Greek cargo ship, which I still do not know how to this day they got passage on this ship. Um, and ended up trying to get into the United States, but the U.S. wasn't letting refugees in at that point from Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so my grandma actually ended up growing up in Ecuador, <laughs> which she grew up in Ecuador and she had cousins in Colombia. Um, so when, you know, when people look at me, I'm very, I look very white, very Eastern European. You do. Yeah. And I always like to throw them off and say, well, you know, my grandma grew up in Ecuador. <laughs> <laughs> 
them. And, you know, obviously she's not Ecuadorian. But a great, great story. (laughs) So the question that I have for you as I hear this story, that's a very dramatic story. (laughs) And it's interesting to me that you say you really didn't think much about what it meant to be Jewish until you were in graduate school, because I feel so personally, I actually grew up next door to one set of grandparents and I was mm-hmm. close with the other. And so much of my view of history, my view of history was always informed by their very personal eyewitness accounts mm-hmm. of the events that you know I would learn about in school. The more I do these interviews, the more I realize how unusual my experience is. Mm-hmm. And I really am trying to understand why that is. Mm-hmm. And I think that I talk to people mm-hmm. and I think that I talk to a lot of people whose older generations simply have not been, it's just been too painful mm-hmm. for them to pass along these stories. And so I'm curious what your experience was in terms yeah. of, yeah, yeah. Hearing about these things from your family. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting in, I grew up knowing my grandma had been through you know, parts of the Holocaust and had lived in Ecuador. And I never really thought to ask. And I think until, I mean, college, really, I was taking a comparative religion class. And they, one of the like final paper prompts was like, write about your family's religious experience or something. So I was like, oh, I've got this down. I'm going to write about my grandparents, my dad's parents, one being Polish Catholic and one being a Holocaust survivor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I sat down and started to write the paper and I couldn't do it because I didn't know enough of the story. Yeah. And so I, I had to call them and say, Hey, I have a kind of, you know, awkward question, but I'm writing a paper about you guys. Can you tell your story? Yeah. You know, that is such a key critical point. I think is that when we, it's kind of like how you say, like, I have just enough knowledge to be dangerous. When Mm -hmm. we think we know a story, when we know the skeleton of it, Mm -hmm. that's when we're the slowest to ask questions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a good point to make, especially if we do have aging relatives is Mm -hmm. keep asking, keep pushing because these stories are so valuable. And it's such a good point, Marissa. Like we don't know what we think we do. We know the cliff notes. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting because I actually knew more about my grandmother's cousin's experience than I knew about hers because Mm. they, one of her cousins had given testimony of his experience during the Holocaust. So I was able to sit down and watch it and, you know, I didn't know him well, so it wasn't super emotional experience, but it was really informative. Right. In just the past couple of months, I reached out to my grandma and said, you know, I'd really love to get your story recorded. Can I be the one to do it? you know, it's a slow process because I think it's a little bit painful for both of us. Um, To me, it's just so important to get that down. There's so much loss and like, there's so much that we don't know that what we do know is so important. Yes. I really, really agree with that. Oh, I just think it's so important because I really fear for our society and the way Mm -hmm. that we boil things down so simply Mm-hmm. And there's so much nuance to every story. And that's before you start comparing other memories or facts mm-hmm. from other people about the same story. Yeah. And, yeah, I, and that's, 
And like, that's where it does get tricky is, you know, I'm talking to, you know, my one grandma about this stuff and like had my, had my great grandma still been alive. Like maybe she would have had a different experience or a different story to tell, especially because my grandmother was a child when all of this happened. Yeah. Yeah. Or even perspective on America. One went in through Ellis Island. This is the Mm -hmm. American dream. The other was rejected at the border. Yeah. We're going to have different perspectives. I mean, one experience doesn't outweigh or negate the other. They just have to be held in our hands at the same time. And just the more stories we can hear, I think just the more empathetic and thoughtful we become because we start to see things as multifaceted. So I think that's wonderful that you're doing that, Marissa. So I would like to hear more about your story personally, that you decided at some point to become more religious. Tell me about that. Was it a conscious decision? Was it kind of just a pull of the heart? Was there an experience? What? There wasn't like one moment that Mm. really kicked it off or anything. Where I grew up, my neighborhood was fairly orthodox. and, And I grew up going to public school, which was great. You know, I still have so many of my friends that I met in like kindergarten and first grade. And Mm. I didn't realize how cool it was to be able to have, I mean, literally all different experiences and all different races, ethnicities, religions. And that's kind of something that I think was really unique to where I grew up. You know, I think maybe in my whole grade of 60 kids, there were maybe seven or eight Jewish kids, but my mom used to come in every year and do kind of mini lessons on Jewish holidays. So like for Hanukkah, she'd come in and bring, you know, dreidels and gelt, which are those chocolate coins. For me, that was so fun. It's funny because as much as I loved growing up, going to public school, I kind of always wanted to go to Jewish day school. You know, what kid wants to go to religious day school? That's like kind of weird. (laughs) So it was just this sense of there's so much more I can learn about who I am. And and so when I went away to college, I joined a Jewish sorority one, which was kind of the first time where everyone around me was Jewish. You know, and a lot of my friends came from pretty Jewish areas or had done Jewish youth groups or things like that. Mm-hmm. And so it was this like, or gone to Jewish um, sleepaway camp, which I had never done, but, and I started going to Hillel in undergrad, which is you know, the Jewish faith organization on campus. Mm-hmm. And I started to meet, you know, people from all different geographic areas of the country who had all different experiences with Judaism. And in my history, sociology-ish brain, I was like, this is really fascinating. Like, mm. there's so much I can just drink up about everyone's experiences. Mm. And I don't, I honestly don't even remember at what point I decided to kind of start keeping kosher style, which Mm. basically I'll eat non-kosher meat. I just really try not to mix meat and dairy mm-hmm. at that moment that I decided it, like it just felt right. Do you think it was that you've wanted to just identify, like separate yourself out as more Jewish, or did you find that there was a benefit to your faith? Did you feel that it in some way impacted your relationship with God? I think it was definitely more of connection to the past. For me, a lot of the work that I do is studying communities right before World War II or during World War II. Hmm. And there was so much tradition and so much that was lost that I think for me, it was just a really nice way to kind of commemorate that and to think about, well, okay, if this hadn't happened, Hmm. you know, reform Judaism might not be a thing. I probably would be keeping fully kosher. Hmm. And honestly, the religious part of 
kosher law, I think is kind of contradictory <laughs> in mm. a lot of ways, but it's, it's that connection to tradition that just really keeps me doing That's interesting. It. And you feel that one of the losses of the Holocaust, I just want to be careful here, besides <laughs> obviously the massive loss of human life and mm-hmm. property yeah. and security, mm-hmm. but you feel actually that another loss was the religiousness of Judaism, like that's really, I've never heard anyone say that before that you would probably be more religious if the Holocaust and kind of like this dispersion hadn't happened. You know, there's a lot of kind of nuances about that. And I don't know if it's necessarily religion or cultural or a combination of the two, Mm. but there was so much culture that was lost in this horrific event. And at the point of the Holocaust, it really was, there was no not no, I won't say no. There was not a lot of differentiation between Jewish culture and Jewish religion. And today that's a very big differentiation. You can be culturally Jewish or you can be religiously Jewish or you can be both. So to me, it's kind of a a way to connect the two. Mm. That's so interesting that that experience kind of split the two apart and they were never meant to be separated. It was always meant to be both and. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think there is some merit to having it kind of split off now as, you know, it opens up a lot of doors to be way more inclusive of who Mm. is Jewish, which Mm. you can, you know, say you're Jewish, even if you don't celebrate any of the religious holidays. And I don't know, you know, a ton about other religions, but I think that's something that is fairly unique to Judaism in a lot of ways. I I just think that's something that's so great to me Judaism has just always been something that's so welcoming and so just community oriented Mm -hmm. and you know and that is true of a lot of other religions as well you know I took I took Hebrew in high school and a little bit in college and so I have a I sound like a five-year-old when I try to speak (laughs) but I can understand a lot of it so that no matter where in the world I am if I hear someone speaking Hebrew like that's something that I feel a connection with them or if I see you know, Hebrew on the side of a building that used to be a synagogue, even if it's not anymore. It's just, we had a presence here. You know, we, we were yeah. here at one point. Yeah. I, I think that's so true. The power of language to signify home. Well, as we're kind of talking about you and your story and, and, and Judaism and everything, you also talk a lot in your blog and your bio about being Midwestern. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm curious what, and I think you've really kind of covered what it meant to be Jewish in the Midwest versus a place like, you know, New York, where maybe you would have had a larger population, but what does it mean to you to be Midwestern? And then you talk about how you knew that LA was not the place for you, but when you went a little farther South and you Mm -hmm. found this area in South Bay, it felt Midwestern to you. So what does that mean to you? My boss at work is from the Midwest as well. And it's kind of just like that same thing I was saying about like, you know, you hear someone speaking Hebrew and like you have this connection, you hear someone, especially when you're outside of the Midwest, you hear someone who like has that Midwestern accent or who says, you know, there's a joke in the Midwest that everyone uses the word ope. If you hit someone, you say, oops, sorry. And it's just kind of, you know, this, this, my boss yeah. actually brought it up the other day. She was like, you say that word a lot. (laughs) And the Midwest is so family oriented in Mm. a lot of ways because I think oftentimes people don't leave the Midwest. Yeah. Just like you were saying, you know, I didn't grow up with my grandparents next door, but both sets of grandparents were within half an hour driving. Yeah. And 
I didn't realize that that's not quite normal for a lot of people. And, you know, we growing up would go to my mom's parents most Sundays for dinner and would just one of my favorite places in the entire world is being in their kitchen. Just at its core, it's family and it's really just strong relationships. You know, I, I think my family also worked very hard to kind of instill a sense of community and family to, I mean, to the point where we have a group chat with all of us that literally never stops. Oh, I love it. (laughs) People from the Midwest are proud to be from the Midwest, even though we know we're the butt of the rest of the country's jokes. (laughs) (laughs) But we, you know, we embrace it. Well, we are kind of, kind of winding down here, especially because I got to edit this baby so quick and turn it around. (laughs) But I want to know about this brisket recipe and how it's related to Passover and what you remember about your grandmother making it. And which, which grandmother is this? Uh, so it's my mom's mom. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I mean, brisket is kind of a celebratory Jewish food. You know, we eat it on Rosh Hashanah, which is one of the major holidays. We eat it on Passover. It's, you know, anytime there's a big Jewish meal, there's probably going to be brisket. Mm. And being from the Midwest, we eat a lot of beef. So just, you know, multiply Mm -hmm. that by two. And (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, but it's, you know, a big flap of meat and you braise it for hours because it's super tough. Mm -hmm. And my grandma's recipe you know, that's what I grew up eating. And I had never actually tried to make it until my senior year house was me and six other girls from my sorority. We all decided to stay for Rosh Hashanah and kind of have our own meal and do all of that. And so we said, well, obviously we have to have a brisket. And I kid you not, every Ashkenazi family around the world <laughs> has a brisket recipe that they think is the best. And they're all probably pretty similar. So that's what I didn't realize. Oh, no. <laughs> like, I grew up eating my grandma's brisket, and I thought it was, she was the only one, and oh my God, how couldn't people not know about this? Uh-huh. And so we decided we were all going to call our grandmothers and ask for their recipes uh-huh. and combine all of the recipes to make our own. So we all get off the phone with our grandmothers and <laughs> comparing recipes, and we're like... Aside from the fact that some use chili sauce and some use ketchup and some use French <laughs> onion mix, these are the same. <laughs> and it's so funny because every single one of our grandmothers said, well, send me a picture of the brisket when it's done. So we, you know, we cooked it for hours and tip, you know, typically I think you wait to slice it until it's fully cooked. I slice mine um, like three quarters of the way through. Oh, so it doesn't shred when you do it. No, no. So it's actually in like thin slices. Okay. Um, we, we take the brisket out of the oven. I think it was after like five hours and it was so hard as a rock. And (laughs) in, in our minds, we were like, Oh my God, we overcooked this meat because we didn't realize at that point it was undercooked. Right. It was undercooked. So we sliced it and we all called our grandmas and we're like, think we overcooked it. What do we do? Like every single one of them said, well, what do you mean you overcooked it? It's brisket. You can't overcook brisket. (laughs) (laughs) Just put it back and it will get soft. So we put it back and it came out fine, but we all sent pictures to our grandmothers and every single one of them sent back. That doesn't look like my brisket. (laughs) We We were like, well, it's not, we combined all of your recipes. 
And I kid you not, not a single one of them was not offended. It was this great connection moment for all of us in the house. Of somehow we managed to offend every single Jewish grandma. <laughs> Even I, when I posted the brisket recipe to my blog, you know, my grandma's recipe is one of those recipes where she hand wrote it from like right. something in her mind. And so there were a lot of elements that were kind of missing or I had to kind of improvise. Yeah. When I cook it, I put a layer of onions on the bottom and I add carrots because my boyfriend loves carrots and brisket and I cook it fat side up and I posted the recipe on the blog for the brisket, which was like the highest viewed recipe I've ever had. But I texted her and I said, everyone loves your brisket. It's gotten, you know, over a thousand views in 24 hours. That's insane. And she responded, she logged on, looked at the recipe. She responded, you changed a lot of things. That's not my brisket. (laughs) Well, I'm just so happy that I don't have to fear this as I make your brisket and post and share it. It's so fun to kind of have this rapport with her now where I can make her recipes. And like, there are certain recipes I just will not change. But this one, like, it didn't even cross my mind that she would cook it fat side down because that's right. <laughs> yeah I know I've, I think I've always heard that the because the fat kind of protects the meat yeah it yeah keeps well, like, the juices sealed in yeah you know in the written recipe it didn't say fat side up or down so I just assumed fat side up <laughs> yeah that's such a great story let's wrap it up with that because you brought it to your blog you know what I love about you Marissa is you are so bold and willing and brave to put your goal out there. This is my journey to a cookbook. Like Mm -hmm. this is going to happen for you. I love and admire, and I'm taking so many notes on that (laughs) mindset, Marissa. So tell me what are your dreams for this blog, which I have to, again, congratulate you. Like in a year, the number of recipes that you've put out, 33 (laughs) hollow breads, the connections that you've made, you are really striking a chord with people, which is amazing. So tell me what your hopes and dreams are. I really, I'm actually in the process of drafting a cookbook right now. What the process looks like after it's drafted is quite scary and daunting. (laughs) Um, Yeah. You know, I just, I've always loved making connections between people and finding that community. And so that's, and it just became this way of finding this great online community of people who were kind of going through exactly the same thing I was going through in 2020 of being away from family and wanting those Jewish recipes. But also there's kind of this movement in with like a lot of young millennial Jews of well, we love these recipes, you know, we want to kind of jazz them up and we love the traditions behind them. But what if we did more? You know, you can see that like with Molly Ye on the Food Network or Jake Cohn, whose um, cookbook just came out. And they're all these like cool, fun, hip flavors, but with Jewish recipes. I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of this Jewish cooking coming to the mainstream. Mm. It, it, I mean, it really kept me going through last That's year. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, you know, I'm so happy that you're working on the book. And honestly, it's just a matter of time, whether <laughs> it's six months. I mean, again, I know we're both people of faith. Like at that point, you know, I keep thinking about because I got hacked and had to start fresh mm-hmm. last July. And it's like, well, I didn't hack myself. It set me right. back. All I can do is just keep going, you know, and I just think for you, I could totally see you getting a cookbook deal in three months. If it takes longer, more hollow recipes to go in, you know, I just think that it's, there's, to me, it's not a matter of if it's just a matter of when, because the content you're putting out is amazing. So, um, Marissa, thank you so, so, so much for taking this time. Is there anything else you wanted to share? 
I'm just so excited that I'm able to do this and especially around Passover and it's it's just so meaningful. And I so enjoyed talking to you. That is so mutual. And thank you again for taking the time to do this in such a rushed way. I'm glad we got to do this. Tell everyone where to find you and your blog. Um, So my blog is northshoretosouthbay.com and also the same name on Instagram, northshoretosouthbay. Awesome. Awesome. And I just started following you on Pinterest also. Oh yes. And I am also, that's a new venture. Yeah. (laughs) I I don't even know my Pinterest name, quite honestly. (laughs) (laughs) I think I just found it that way. I think I did North Shore to South Bay. All right, Marissa, thank you so, so much. Oh, thank you. It was so much fun. Take care. We'll talk soon. Talk soon. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much to Marissa for this interview and for sharing her brisket recipe and her Passover Almond Joy macaroon recipes with us. You can find both of these on my blog, thestoriedrecipe.com. And if you want to try any of Marissa's challah bread flavors, once Passover is over, of course, if you're Jewish, you can also find her contact information in the show notes. Also, recently, I've been asking you for some more reviews because I truly depend on you to grow this podcast so we can share more stories and amplify more voices. And today, I want to thank Dikla and read a review from her. Now, Dee blogs over at One Sarcastic Baker, and right now, she's actually writing a book on the science of baking. Um, I'm reading her her review today because I actually needed some holiday photos for this episode. And so I used Dee's recipe, which is a flawless recipe, mainly because Dee shares not only ingredients and instructions, but also really critical tips and science behind the baking of challah in her recipe. So that's a little introduction to Dee. And here is her recent, very, very kind review of the podcast. The storied recipe is heartwarming, comforting, and a one of a kind podcast. It is not every day that one gets to feel so close and welcomed through a story that happened years and years ago on a different continent. Becky has a wonderful way of connecting to both her guests and audience. You cry, you laugh, you think about the loved ones you lost and the ones that surround you. Thank you so much, Dee. That meant, oh, that meant so much to me. And right now I'm going to ask you also to rate and review the podcast. It really is, again, critical for this podcast to grow and move out and reach more people. And I know it can be tricky to do reviews. So I've made it super easy for you. All you need to do is go to lovethepodcast.com slash the storied recipe. That's lovethepodcast.com slash the storied recipe. And this site will automatically detect what device you're on and give you the option to rate a review right then and there with just one click. And you don't have to figure out where to go or anything like that. So again, it's lovethepodcast.com, the storied recipe. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It means so much to me. I hope you have a great week, my friends.